What's happening, security gang? Welcome to another episode of the Sysso Talk podcast. It's a very special one today. Not only because it's after Passover and I can finally eat bread again, not because I'm back from Israel, um, not because I'm still in Israel and it's really nice, but it's because I have a very special guest for today's episode because his book is available right now. Andy Ellis was the CSO over at Akamai. He's currently the operating partner over at YL Ventures. The man knows cybersecurity, but more so he knows leadership. And for the next 30 minutes, he's going to drop so many nuggets that you're going to have to use the link in the show notes to go get his book because it's available right now on Amazon. And if you've got Prime, you don't have to wait very long. You can get it and have it ready to read over the weekend. So without further ado, let's bring Andy into the show. It's CISO talk time. Here we go, y'all. From the Cyber Hub Bunker in studio, you're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Andy, welcome to the show. James, thanks for having me. And now I know it's James Azar and not James Azar, which is what was in the back of my head for some reason. You know, it, Azar or Azar, it's pretty much the same, right? Like, I, I don't, it, it's not like one of those last names where you can screw it up severely, <laughs> right? Well, so I've got a question. Do you pronounce it differently depending on which language you're speaking in? Yeah. So because in the English, there's no Ein, which in Hebrew right. exists. So in, in Hebrew, it's Aza. But in, in English, it's Azar, yep. and, and, and same thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. Well, I ran oh, into this because one, one of my leadership practices is always ask people how they want to, their name pronounced and then do that. And almost all of my Israeli colleagues are like, yeah, I don't care. If you're speaking English, pronounce it this way. If you're in Hebrew, this way. And I'm like, no, which one do you want? And they're like, I don't care. You can't get it wrong. Well, you know, and, and it's, it's really funny because you'll meet a Shlomo, and he'll be like, call me Sam. You're like, all right, Sam. And then you go to a coffee shop and they'll say Shlomo. And you're like, Shlomo? Who's Shlomo? And you're like, I'm Shlomo, but I tell everyone to call me Sam because it's easier because no one can really say Shlomo or they don't know right. how to say Shlomo or whatever the case may be. It's, it's actually fascinating. I try to do the same, by the way. Whenever I'm speaking to someone whose name I have a hard time pronouncing, please let me practice your name. And I'll write it on a piece of paper three, four, five times yep. to make sure I pronounce it correctly and say it correctly. Um, and then true. sometimes I do that so much that then I get both names stuck in my head and I can't remember which was right and which was wrong. And I've, then I'm like, okay, every time we meet, I'm going to re-ask. I've had that happen to me so many times, so many times. It's not even funny. So many times. Well, welcome to the show. It's a big day for you today. Your absolutely book huge today. day. My book just came out. So I guess even though you say no sales, I'm, I'm here to kind of sell my book, but really I'm here to talk about leadership. Well, your book doesn't need selling. It's, it's a you. great book, Ryan, and I'm going to have you share with our audience a little bit about your book here in just a minute. But before we do that, for those who may not know who Andy Ellis is, what kind of brought you to the world of cybersecurity? How did your whole journey in the security start? Well, I sort of got sucked into it without choice. I had an Air Force ROTC scholarship, so I was at MIT, uh-huh. and I got a call one day from this major in South Carolina. I was a junior at the time, and this is very weird because the way the Air Force normally works is you fill out this form that says everything you want to do in the Air Force, and I wanted to be a weapon systems officer in the backseat of an airplane or an air traffic controller. I thought that was a cool gig, so I had a whole bunch of operational roles. 
And I'd been studying Japanese. So I'm like, oh, I want to go to Japan uh, or I want to go to Europe or I want to go to any of the cool places in the United States. So I get this call from this major. He's like, yeah, we're looking to bring people down to this brand new unit. And he's telling me all about it. And I'm like, this is weird. Is this an interview? Like you don't get interviewed for your first job in the Air Force. And he said, and yeah, we get to do by name requests and we want all of the you know, graduating, you know, commissioning second lieutenants out of MIT with computer science degrees. And I'm looking at my, uh, and I'm just counting on my fingers. I'm like, oh, that's me. So, uh, so I ended up going to South Carolina, which was the only region on the planet that I had not asked to be stationed. Um, I was technically an acquisitions officer, but I was doing information warfare. So the Air Force sent me to school to learn all about networking and computer network defense. We built some of the first you know, network defenses on the planet for an, you know, an operational unit. We uh, used Wheel Group's NetRanger, which became Cisco NetRanger, then Cisco IDS, I think, when uh, Cisco bought it. And it's a lot of fun for me because now I work with the IDF folks who are you know, graduated out of the IDF and they all say, right. oh, I'm in 8200. And I just point at my wall and I say, I have a commendation medal for doing you know, cyber operations in the last millennium. So, yes, I'm familiar with what 8200 is. Um, and they all sort of just stop at that point. It's become this sort of running joke with all the 8200 folks. So that was where I started doing cybersecurity. And then when I got out of the Air Force, I went to Akamai and I did that for 20 years. You know, Akamai story is unbelievable. One, because I, we believe that the founder of Akamai, uh, Daniel, was the yep. first the first victim of the 9-11. Yep. He, was, he was the first person murdered on 9-11. Yeah. That's a, I, I always bring that up on 9-11. Um, it's kind of like the story to, to that company, even, though, you know, it's been 20, 23 years, 22 yep. years now, but still. Yeah, and if folks are interested in his story, um, one of the books on the shelf behind me is that No Better Time by Molly Raskin. It's a really good story of Danny's life. Yeah, he's uh, uh, definitely someone who uh, who's worthy of looking up to. Because yeah. he, he, I think he he charged him, if I'm not mistaken. But he, well, it's it's uh, what we believe happened was he heard uh, one of the terrorists. Um, you know, say sort of his final prayers, realized what was happening because Danny had been in the IDF as a, in, you know, in a counterterrorism unit, um, but didn't realize the guy behind him was also one of the terrorists. So Danny started to react and was murdered by the passenger behind him who was one of the terrorists. Yeah. Well, you know, irregardless to that, that's leadership right there, right? I Absolutely. mean, that's, that, that's leadership and that kind of goes to your book, 1% Leadership. What made you write a book? Uh, so I was writing a lot of essays because I have been to a lot of leadership training in my life. You know, I was at the, in the Air Force. You get a lot of leadership training, both as a cadet and as an officer. I worked at Disneyland for a while. A lot of leadership training goes on there because you know, they're very focused on specific things. At Occamai, I went to different leadership trainings at different points in my career. And one of the things that really struck me is that almost everybody has a solution, right? They treat leadership almost like a religion. They're like, this is my way of doing leadership, whether it's the growth mindset or a specific, you know, whatever it's going to be. Like, here's my, my model. And usually there's some saint that this is like the Saint Jack Welch. This is his model. You should ladder rank everybody and you will have leadership. And so they teach you this sort of ideology that says you must do it this way. And it's one way. And they ignore all of the little things that actually made that leader a really great leader at least for their time and their situation. 
And I found that what I would do is you'd know, go to a training and it would then go to my team. And I would then have to sort of write an essay that said, look, here's how to take what they told you with a grain of salt, that there's a nugget in there. It's good, but it's not all consuming. And I realized along the way that my philosophy of leadership was just to get a little bit better every day to try to build an organization that reduced the energy cost just to exist so that you get more energy into value producing activities. And that all leadership is, is making work more effective. And there's lots of different approaches to it, but like any skill set, like you wanna be a football player, like there's not just one thing you do, there's a whole bunch of things you're gonna do and you're gonna practice all of them because your weakest link is what's gonna sabotage you. It doesn't matter if you are the greatest pocket passer. If you have no presence, you're going to get tackled and sacked all the time. Like you need to have the whole skill set and same thing for leaders. So I started taking these essays and structured them. And so that's the book. Um, the other thing that bothered me about every leadership book, and I've got a bunch of them up here as well, and some of them do this, is they're really, they're one tweet buried inside 300 pages. The, right. the author doesn't want to tell you that they only have like one simple lesson in here. They, they want to sell a whole book. So you have to read it to figure out what the lesson is. And usually somewhere around chapter three, you think you figured it out and you're just testing for a couple more chapters and then you're done with the book. And there might be things at the end of the book that you're like, oh, this is would have been great to know, but you're bored by then because you've learned the lesson. So for my book, every chapter is a standalone. It has its own lesson. The chapter title is the lesson. There's no hiding it. I'm not trying to be cute and make you figure out what I'm trying to tell you. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I've got a 750 words about it, and then I will repeat it again. So the chapters are short. They're meant to be consumable. And I really wanted this to be leadership training that would be accessible to everyone, whether you're a C-level executive, someone just entering the workforce, someone who's not even in the workforce and is just a community leader or you're active in some social group. There are leadership challenges that you have there. And I wanted to provide some education and training for everyone. Yeah, that's the, you know, the, the kind of story of, of writing a book to me and looking at the chapters, right, and looking at some of the the stuff in the book, I've pre-ordered the book and I can't wait to get it. I know, you know, it comes out today. I think it should get Amazon's it. Amazon's hopefully dropping it off right now outside your door. I hope so. But according to Amazon, I'm not going to get it for two more days, which is very, very disturbing, right? Well, like, you did have it shipped to you in Israel. So I let's, did. let's at least be fair. I, I, I did. But, you know, I, I was looking at the kind of some of the stuff you shared with me before. And, you know, you look at the chapter and, and you've broken down the books the book into three different kind of parts, right? Personal leadership. And then you've got, um, excuse me, team leadership. And then finally you have the third one, which is organizational leadership. How do you differentiate and why did you kind of break it down into those three parts? So, so I'll tell you why, and then I'll tell you how. So the why is I actually didn't start writing a book on leadership. I started writing a book on decision-making for organizations. Because that's okay. been a topic that I've you know, done a lot of keynotes. If you've ever seen me talk like at RSA or RVA sec or any of the security conferences, you've probably seen one of my lectures on leadership or on decision making. And so I started writing that book. And but to write that book, I had to write this organizational decision making, organizational leadership section to support decision making. And I'm like, well, how do I teach you to do this at the organizational level? I have to teach you it at the team level. And so at some point I realized I was writing a book about leadership and decision-making was a footnote at the end. And so I took out all the, all the decision-making chapters are gone. 
They're, they're sitting in my idol. Maybe they'll be part of book two. And then as I was thinking about leadership, to me, leadership became, uh, I sort of came to this from the, the soft skills, hard skills mindset. Like people often talk about soft skills and hard skills. By the way, I hate those terms. I use them because everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. And to me, hard skills are the way that you use your own will to change the world. And so to me, that's, that's a piece of leadership, but that's personal leadership. How do you change yourself with your own will? And then affect the world through those changes. And then team leadership is how do you affect the people you interact with? Again, through your will to improve how they're going to change the world. And then organizational leadership is about how do you do that at scale across a large organization? So we might think of this in just, you know, the soft skills, you have you know, technical skills, people skills, and process skills, right? Processes are how we change, you know, at a distance. And I think that organizational leadership is a lot of process combined with team and personal leadership. I, I couldn't agree more with your last statement, right? Oftentimes in security, you're having to go and, and win and lead other people outside of your security team to, to yep. really get policies put in, to get tools deployed you know, and so it's really difficult. And, and what we lack a lot of times is leadership and compromise, like good negotiating skills, building yeah. those relationships. I'm looking at your organizational leadership and, you know, chapter 42, you talk about, you have to feed a culture to see it flourish. You can tell I've taken notes cause I'm looking on yep. my notes and I'm old school, right? The way I take notes is I don't write it on a computer. I write it on a piece of paper. So I'm very, very old school when it comes to that. So when you talk about having to feed a culture to see it flourish from a, from an organizational leadership perspective, what's, what's some of the best ways you've done it before? And what does that chapter really kind of highlight for, for the reader? So what I think you have, you have to recognize is that it, you can't grow a culture from zero. That's really hard. What happens is you have to take an existing culture and feed the parts you like and starve the parts you don't like because cultures just evolve. Like you take a group of six people, you put them working on a team together, and in a year you have a culture. It might not be a great culture, but you will have a culture. And you might have people on it who are feeding what they like, and you have to continuously evaluate the culture to decide, do you want to keep it? Because there's things that work for six people that will not work for 50. Like I'll give you an example. It used to be this thing in, in security teams. I don't know if it still happens where if somebody like left their screensaver unlocked, you'd walk by and you'd send email from them. Um, and, you know, you yeah. do things like, like, Hey, I'll, I'm buying coffee for the team or you know, whatever it is. It's humorous. And when everybody knows everybody and you all have these tight relationships, like that's a piece of your culture. That's actually pretty healthy. It can be a lot of fun. But all of a sudden, you're like 50 people, some new person shows up on the team, they're terrified because this is their like stretch job, they're really excited to be here, they make one mistake, and they get embarrassed in front of the whole organization. I've done that on Slack. I don't send emails anymore. I just go on Slack and say, I had a line that said, my CISO caught my computer unlocked right. while I stepped away. So this is a message from the CISO to everyone else. Don't be that guy with a phone. Don't be game. that person. But the problem is that works within some cultures, but that can actually be pretty toxic in different cultures. Correct. I mean, it so, worked in our culture because we were a tight-knit yep. group. So that's the sort of thing is you have to decide what pieces of the culture you want to keep feeding and which ones start dragging you down. Like we had um, in the early days at Akamai, we had free soda. There were vending machines on every floor. Like just walk over, get yourself a soda. 
And then they started to notice that like there was soda that was being consumed way faster than expected. So they made it 25 cents a soda and it didn't act like it reduced it a little bit, but there were people who were like, they thought it was a perk that at the end of the day, they'd walk over with their backpack and they'd fill it up with soda and take it home for their family. Like, and now you got to think about like, what do you do in that situation? Like, how do you deal with it? Like we ended up basically the soda ended up being like 70 cents. You know, we were basically paying market prices and then they eventually took them all out once they decided they weren't healthy for us. Um, but like, these are these interesting things you run into, which is you have to look at all your pieces of culture and decide what do you want to have in your culture? Who do you want your organization to be and feed the good parts and starve the parts you don't want to have anymore? So you've got a, I like that. And, and that's great. Now you've got a chapter that's got me really eager to read it. Okay. All right. Chapter 27, your job's not to like your team. It I is to not one. dislike them. Yep. I looked, I, I, I was reading the chapter title in your table of contents, right? And I'm, I need this chapter. I want it now. Yeah. So, so this actually started as title. parenting advice, believe it or not. <laughs> you don't have um, to love your children. Yeah, it's, it's no, no, it's not about loving your children. It's your job. I, I was I was talking with a friend of mine who was having a really difficult time with one of his kids. His kids are the same age as mine. And he was so mad at his daughter. And he's sort of telling me the story. And it's like his daughter was basically a rude psychopath. She's three <laughs> at the time. And I'm like, they're all rude psychopaths, dude. Like, just get over this. And so I said to him, I said, look, your job is not to like your children. It's to turn them into competent adults. And you can't do that if you dislike them. And that's the same thing with the people who work for you. You don't have to like the people that work for you. But the moment that you actively dislike one of them, you can't be their leader anymore. Because they will know that you dislike them. They will read everything that you say to them through that lens. And you will sabotage them without thinking about it because humans make so many decisions without thought. It's not that you're going to actively be like, oh, I dislike them. Let me give them the worst possible you know, jobs. But you will do a little bit of that unconsciously. Now, here's the thing. We want to be friendly with the people who work for us. We love it when they're our friends. But the reality is that friends can screw you over and you take it personally. Your team can screw you over and you don't get to take it personally. You are at that moment just their employer. In the same way that one day you're going to have to walk over and lay someone off, they get to walk over and say, I'm done, I'm out of here. They get to put their own self-interest ahead of the team, and that's okay. You can't take that personally. And so you have to sort of hold this dichotomy in your head. You want to create a friendly environment. You want to make it feel like a family, but it is not a family. These people have other priorities than you. And you have to accept that. Like you're not their friend and therefore they can never betray you socially. And so you don't get to dislike them. Yeah, that's that rings true to my ear because I think we've all been guilty of that, right? Where, oh yeah, I've been very guilty of that. I'll, like just to be clear, a lot yeah. of these are lessons I learned by not doing it the right way at some point in my career. I don't think there's anyone who, it's, it's very hard. You know, you talked about friends and kind of not the, you know, your friends can screw you over and you take it personal. Yep. I think in, in, in work, sometimes it's, it's not just friendship. There's that camaraderie, right? You and I know it from the military, that mm -hmm. camaraderie that that's my brother in arms. That's my sister in arms. These are my fellow countrymen and we have a mission to do. And a lot of times in security, we get that same feeling. 
Not yeah. to say we're warriors. I'm not doing the Kellen Winslow Jr. Uh, you know, we're we're football players. We're warriors. No, we're not. We're cybersecurity. We we are in the state of warfare, right? That's the nature of our business. Is the nature of our business is we're in information warfare. Like yep. how you started, right? We're we're trying to defend our organization, our business from potential malfeasance, and and the t- people we serve with, we feel are our backbone. So, how would you talk to someone who, you know, kind of develops that maybe lack of commitment that you see from them. And so, so they develop that dislike and, and then it kind of ends up being toxic and detrimental to a culture that's taken you a year or so to build in your team. Right. And so I think you have to, whenever you're adding or subtracting people in your organization, you have to recognize that they change the organization with their presence. And for most organizations, it's okay to have people who are not committed to the mission. Like if you have somebody who they're there nine to five, and they're going to do great work while they're there. But no, if their attitude is, if you call me at 3 a.m., I'm not answering the phone because that's not what you're actually paying me to do. Like, you actually have to accept that. That's not them hurting the culture. That's you have an unsustainable culture. And that's an ugly, hard truth for people to sometimes accept that we build very unsustainable cultures. Right? And we take advantage of people and we reward them for being taken advantage of we have a whole conversation about that dynamic but at the end of the day like if if they absolutely don't fit get them out of your organization like if you have somebody that you dislike and you can't get over it then you need to manage them out of your team and that's okay to just say this doesn't work there's a lot of reasons you manage people out of a team and that's a fine one And you can manage them out gracefully. You can say, hey, guess what? I don't think this is going to work for us. So why don't you take the next six months looking for a job? Because I don't want to do paperwork to put you on a PIP like painfully. And I'll help you go find your next job. But I don't think this is the right fit for either of us. So there's a chapter here where I'm hoping it is what I think it is. (laughs) Chapter 34. An apology budget allows your team to take risks. Yes. I say this is... What I say always, we practice cybersecurity no different than how doctors practice medicine. There's a path forward, there's guidelines, there's yep. the right way to do it, but the right way isn't for everyone. Meaning just because I cut someone through here doesn't mean I can cut every patient that way. Doesn't mean I can, not, the same medicine doesn't work on every patient, the same dosage. There's a lot yep. of variables like in medicine in cybersecurity. So I constantly say we practice cybersecurity and mistakes are very, very common. Talk to me about the apology budget. So the apology budget, this is a way to, to help delegate. And you'll notice it comes right after a chapter on delegation. Right. So the, the idea of the apology budget is let's say that you're my stakeholder, right? I'm the CISO and you're the VP of engineering and you've asked me to get some work done. So I'm going to turn to one of the people on my team and I'm say, hey, you know, Taylor, can you go do this work? Here's what I need from you. Now, Taylor needs to know that if it gets screwed up, And you're not happy that I will not throw Taylor under the bus, that I will go to you and apologize on Taylor's behalf. I'm going to say, hey, James, yep, we did not deliver what you needed. I'm really sorry about that. I'm going to work to make sure, you know, maybe I overdelegated. Maybe we didn't understand the situation. Whatever went wrong, I will apologize to you. And I'm going to go back to Taylor and say, hey, Taylor, guess what? Also my fault. I left you. I let you, you know, go too far. I wasn't paying attention. I knew James was a really sensitive character that like was going to be really picky and I did not give you enough guidance here. So I'm going to make it better for you as well. But Taylor needs to know that you apologize and you took the hit. 
Because otherwise, Taylor, next time Taylor's going to be like, uh uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not going and doing this. I'm going to be very risk averse. And we need our people to take risk to grow. And so that's the whole idea. It's like you have to be prepared to apologize on the behalf of your team. And they need to know that you will. And sometimes you can go to someone and say, you know, James, it's um, you've you've sort of maxed out the apology budget for the year. I need you to take a little bit less risk. And I've I've done that. I had somebody we were talking about the apology budget, and like inside my staff meeting, he's like, Well, you know, what how's my apology budget? And I said, I would really like you to not spend any more of it this year. <laughs> and the whole room sort of paused for a moment. He's like, Okay, that's fair. But it was this nice, clear, non-judgmental conversation at that moment. So, okay, I, you know, I was looking at the chapter titles for all of the personal leadership stuff. And I, and, and if y'all are not noticing, I started from the very end of the book and I'm moving to the front, right? I went from yep. organizational and so forth. I wanted to do that specifically because I didn't want to go chronological. I really wanted to go kind of big picture and then hone in into the person themselves because a lot of times, we, we look at the very top and, and our problem is we're always trying to go organizational, then team, then self, because that's how you really kind of hone something in. Yep. I think from a reversal perspective, you know, we talked a little you bit can about read the book in backwards order, just to be very clear. Like if you want to go from the last chapter and count down, that would totally work. You know, in some, in some uh, history books, that's how I start reading them. Mm-hmm. I start reading it from the very end and then go look and see the what the consequences the, were and then right, find see what the, the consequences causes. are yeah. kind of like a Tarantino where, where sometimes a Tarantino <laughs> movie will start with the ending yeah, and then take you all the way to how you got to where you got. So, so uh, I kind of find that to be sometimes very, very helpful in terms of trying to think about something, at least in, in my brain. Right. So yep. one of the things you talk about here in kind of personal leadership is Sorry, I, I had it here. Even if you don't succeed, a story about failure can be a reward. And yeah. that to me, you know, I, I come from a, a startup that recently failed and it's part of my book is kind of that failure. So, you know, help other people understand what that means. Yeah, so I, this is, I, I saw that title and I got yeah. it. This is sort of a riff on the, I think experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. Um, that look, we, we try and we fail all the time. Like my life is littered with failures. Right. But the story of what happened is sometimes really helpful for a lot of things. One is for your own affect. Like, just because you failed at something, like, I got kicked out of MIT. I came in as a freshman. They kicked me out at the end of my freshman year and said, you are not ready to attend college. Like, go away. And when you're ready to come back, we have a separate path to let people back in. MIT really does want you to graduate. But you're not ready. Like, that's just a story about my failure that here's the reward. First of all, if you're listening to this and you're at that point in your life, it can get better. Like, you can see that this gets better for someone else. The second is it helps me sort of come to terms with what was a really painful moment in my life. Like, getting that e- that email, wasn't an email, getting the letter from the Committee on Academic Performance was a really painful day. Like, now I got to go to my parents and be like, guess what? I don't have a job. I don't have a job and I don't have a uh, a place to go back to at the end of the summer. And they're like, go get a job and move out of the house. Right? It's what I needed. It's the kick in the pants that I actually needed to to figure start figuring out my life. But but that's a story that's that's really helpful. And where it's also becomes helpful in an organizational context is every failure teaches something about why the failure happened. 
Right. And when you can tell that story and have that reward, and sometimes it's just joyful. Like we ever, I think type two fun is one of my favorite sort of references for this, right? The fun that you have not doing an activity, but in telling the story about how awful it was, like those are gifts. Tell that story. Maybe other people like, oh, I want to run that marathon or work an incident shift or whatever it is, or maybe they want to avoid them and they can learn from your story how to avoid the problem. I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. There's so much, you learn more from failure than success. I think that's 100% true. Absolutely. There's no such thing as just a constant stream of success in life. That doesn't exist. Anyone who says it does is lying to you. Right. You and what here's your face and say you liar. Yeah, here's an important part about it as well, which is I know people who don't like to tell the stories of the failure because they like where they ended up. And so they feel like in looking at a failure, they have to say, "Well, I wish I hadn't done that." And it's okay to say like at the time, "I wish I had done better." It all ended up working out, but I want to tell the story so that other people can make better decisions at that moment. Yeah, I've um We've all made a bunch of failures. I may have to do just a small five-minute podcast in the future about just my failures and what I learned from them. Can you can you really do that in only five minutes? I don't think I can, I can, I can do it take, that quickly. I think I can take one or two of them. Oh, there and, you go. Yeah, that would totally work. Right, not all of them. I don't. I think if I did all of them, I'd be streaming for like two, three weeks. I'd yeah. probably do a fundraiser at that point. Right. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I'd, I'd tune in. <laughs> you know the book has me really, really excited to get my hands on it and, and, and read it through because I think there's a lot of stuff in this book where you start to kind of put it through and it's, it's you know, take one little thing and make it, right? Take one yep. little piece of nugget, practice it, put it through, go do another one, go do another one. Yeah, and then come back one. to ones you've already practiced and practice right. them some more. Like I am still practicing everything in this book. Like I am not done. Are we ever done though? No, Andy, like, are we ever done? I don't think we're ever done. At some point you run out of energy because you're in the grave and then you're done. You know, you, some people are in the grave and we still learn from them being in the grave than we do right. when they're alive. Right. And then you leave behind, hopefully a lot of these lessons for the next generation. Yeah. You leave behind that legacy. So we're almost at time. And I can't believe we've been through nearly 30 minutes of this conversation because I have so many more questions, but I'm going to have to hold them. Yep. And uh, potentially uh, we do another one of these maybe at black hat live oh, i would love everyone. that'd be fantastic right because i think you'll probably be there with the book and i've already read the book and i can you know pick your brain a whole lot more and we can geek out on the book so i want to put you on the hot seat andy as a okay. CSO. i want to welcome you to my buzzword graveyard okay and ask you to bury a buzzword bury a buzzword bury a buzzword so any buzzword that i want that i want nobody to ever use again Correct. We bury it. Risk. Hmm. Why? That's a first. Because nobody agrees on what the definition of risk is. And so I think that as security practitioners, we need to be very careful about using it because it sets off a lot of alarms in people's heads. They hear us say risk and they think it means one thing or another thing. We need to be more precise. We need to talk about unacceptable losses, the consequences of bad things happen. We need so to talk about risk with unacceptable losses. Unacceptable losses for the outcomes, hazards for the dangers we have in our environment that might lead to them. You know, talk about attack paths for things that adversaries might do to engage hazards 
to achieve unacceptable losses on us. Maybe attack scenarios to make them general. Like ransomware is an attack scenario. Like there's a whole bunch of ways that an adversary might exploit some hazards to end up with an unacceptable loss in our environment. But I could call each of those things a risk. Like, oh, the risk of losing all of our data, the risk of having a flat, you know, active directory system so that adversaries can move laterally or the risk of not patching or the risk of ransomware like risk means everything to everyone so i want to bury it stop using it see if you can go a day talking to somebody about a problem in the environment that you would like to fix and not use the the word risk maybe do a risks jar put a dollar every time you use dollar oh i love that every time you say the word risk put a dollar in and right next to it if you want to be really good put a threats jar too Ooh, that's a good one I like that. I don't, I try to avoid the word threat by all means necessary. Mm-hmm. So last song you were listening to before you came on the podcast, what was it? Music box dancer by Frank Mills. Okay. Very interesting. Published and so, in 1974. Wow. Wow. We're going back what 40, 50 years. Yeah. It's a, it's so it was one of my favorite songs as I was a kid. I was recently reintroduced to it because someone had a Facebook post talking about how it became popular it was completely by accident. Like he was an easy listening composer. He has this instrumental music box dancer that was like, I don't know, track six or seven on one of his you know, albums. They had sent out a like a single. There's, you know, back when it was all vinyl. So there's an A side and a B side. Right. And music box dancer was on the B side. I even forget what was on the A side. They sent it to like all the easy listening stations in Canada. And by accident, they sent it to a pop station. And the pop station, like played track A and was like, why did you send this to us? <laughs> played track B. And it's it, it there is a little bit of pop involved in the in music box dancer, but not really. It's like if you've ever heard it, you'll realize how badly I just butchered it. Um, but you should all go listen to it. Like it's a nice little charming ditty. So that's what I was listening to. Awesome. So being an author, uh and beyond the shameless plug for your book, what other what's the book you're reading right now? as kind of your book comes out today? Oh, well, the, the book I'm reading right now is, um, God, I'm blanking on the time. I read so many things on Kindle that just got auto-delivered. I read a uh-huh. lot of uh, lit RPG where okay. like people have like, you know, the, 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 the game consequences going on with them. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's Seth Ring's new, new series. I think the forger um, it's based, it's, you know, he had a previous series and then somebody's come in and done and like the characters have now moved on and they get a new series because they had maxed out all their levels in the old universe. Very cool. Max out all your levels in the previous universe. That yeah. seems like the ultimate human initiative, right? Let me max out all max my out levels. Max out all my levels. There's, there's this whole set of new sci- sci-fi slash fantasy that's like, oh, a game universe has just taken over our universe and now you have a stat sheet that you can interact with. And like, it's fascinating sort of seeing how people write, write novels in that world. I think we all have one stat sheet in this life, and that's how do we treat other humans? I think that's a great stat sheet. And yet you can get 1% better at that. Yep, you can just by reading 1% Leadership. The link to the book, folks, is in the show notes before. Go grab it. It's on sale today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and your favorite local bookstore. And if your favorite local bookstore doesn't have it, say, what? You don't have 1% Leadership by Andy? What? Yep. And if you bring it to RSA and find me, I will autograph it. Tell me, tell me you listened to it and bought it because of this. I will autograph it and say something extra special in it. Oh, that's super awesome. I won't be at RSA. I'll be 
I'm still in Israel, but I wish y'all. Well, James, you can find me and I promise I'll autograph your copy. I will see you at Black Hat. That's what, okay. That's that's for sure. If I don't see you before that in Israel. Um, So for everyone tuning in, go grab Andy Ellis's book, 1% Leadership. You can find it on Amazon. The link is below. Go click that link, order the book today. You don't want to miss it. A great book, very easy read, very, very easy read from the sounds of it with a lot of great, great nuggets. Andy, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day launch day to be here with us. Well, thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. All right, y'all. That's it for Sister Talk. Please make sure to subscribe, tune in. We have another awesome episode next week as we continue this season. This season ends in June. Then we'll be off July, August, uh, and then mid-August we'll come back with season number four. So we'll have a summer break. That's kind of the new format we're doing here on the show this year and then going forward. Just kind of give ourselves a little breather so that burnout doesn't become a real thing. So... Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks for being part of the show. The awesome Andy Ellis. Go check him out. And also the link to his uh, LinkedIn page is there below. Go and follow Andy. Uh, He drops always. There's a lot of wisdom from Andy on LinkedIn, so don't miss that. That's it for here. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Have a great rest of your day. And most importantly, stay cyber safe. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. And get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com.